Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me this evening. Tonight's author is Samuel Langhorn Clemens, better known as Mark Twain. William Faulkner called him the father of American literature. Ernest Hemingway said that the American novel began with Huckleberry Finn. Let's not forget that he was also very funny. Author, humorist, entrepreneur, and lecturer, he was so great and beloved a public personality that he has been called the first rock star of American letters. Two pieces tonight. The first, published in 1865, made him internationally famous. The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. This one goes out with best wishes to Chris, to Jennifer, and to Will. In compliance with the request of a friend of mine who wrote me from the East, I called on good-natured, garrulous old Simon Wheeler and inquired after my friend's friend, Leonidas W. Smiley, as requested to do, and I hereunto append the result. I have a lurking suspicion that Leonidas W. Smiley is a myth, that my friend never knew such a personage, and that he only conjectured that if I asked old Wheeler about him, it would remind him of his infamous Jim Smiley, and he would go to work and bore me nearly to death with some infernal reminiscence of him as long and tedious as it should be useless to me. If that was the design, it certainly succeeded. I found Simon Wheeler dozing comfortably by the barroom stove of the old dilapidated tavern in the ancient mining camp of Angels, and I noticed that he was fat and bald-headed, and had an expression of winning gentleness and simplicity upon his tranquil countenance. He roused up and gave me good day. I told him a friend of mine had commissioned me to make some inquiries about a cherished companion of his boyhood named Leonidas W. Smiley, Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, a young minister of the gospel who he had heard was at one time a resident of Angel's Camp. I added that if Mr. Wheeler could tell me anything about this Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, I would feel under many obligations to him. Simon Wheeler backed me into a corner and blockaded me there with his chair, and then sat me down and reeled off the monotonous narrative which follows. He never smiled, he never frowned, he never changed his voice from the gentle flowing key to which he tuned the initial sentence, he never betrayed the slightest suspicion of enthusiasm, but all through the interminable narrative there ran a vein of impressive earnestness and sincerity which showed me plainly that, so far from his imagining that there was anything ridiculous or funny about his story, he regarded it as a really important matter and admired its two heroes as men of transcendent genius in finesse. To me, the spectacle of a man drifting serenely along through such a queer yarn without ever smiling was exquisitely absurd. As I said before, I asked him to tell me what he knew of Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, and he replied as follows. I let him go on in his own way, and never interrupted him once. There was a fella here once by the name of Jim Smiley in the winter of forty-nine, or maybe it was the spring of fifty, I don't recollect exactly somehow, though what makes me think it was one or the other is because I remembered the big flume wasn't finished when he first came to the camp. But anyway, he was the curiousest man about, always betting on anything that turned up you ever see, if he could get anybody to bet on the other side, and if he couldn't, he'd change sides. 
Any way that suited the other man would suit him. Any way just so's he got a bet, he was satisfied. But still he was lucky, uncommon lucky. He most always come out winner. He was always ready and laying for a chance. There couldn't be no solitary thing mentioned, but that fellow'd offer to bet on it, and take any side you please, as I was just telling you. If there was a horse race, you'd find him flush, or you'd find him busted at the end of it. If there was a dog fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a cat fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a chicken fight, he'd bet on it. Why, if there was two birds sitting on a fence, he would bet you which one would fly first. Or if there was a camp meeting, he would be there regular to bet on Parson Walker, which he judged to be the best exhorter about here. And so he was, too, and a good man. If he even seen a straddle-bug start to go somewheres, he would bet you how long it would take him to get wherever he was going to, and if he took him up, he would follow that straddle-bug to Mexico, but what he would find out where he was bound for and how long he was on the road. Lots of the boys here have seen that smiley and can tell you about him. Why, it never made no difference to him, he would bet on anything. The dangdest feller. Parson Walker's wife laid very sick once for a good while, and it seemed as if they weren't going to save her. But one morning he come in, and Smiley asked how she was, and he said she was considerable better, thank the Lord for his infinite mercy, and coming on so smart that with the blessing of Providence she'd get well yet. And Smiley, before he thought, says, Well, I'll risk two and a half that she don't anyway. This year Smiley had a mare. The boys called her the fifteen-minute nag, but that was only in fun, you know, because, of course, she was faster than that, and he used to win money on that horse, for all she was so slow and always had the asthma or the distemper or the consumption or something of that kind. They used to give her two or three hundred yards start and then pass her underway, but always, at the fag end of the race, she'd get excited and desperate-like and come cavorting and straddling up and scattering her legs around limber, sometimes in the air and sometimes out to one side amongst the fences, and kicking up more dust and raising more racket with her coughing and sneezing and blowing her nose, and always fetch up at the end just about a neck ahead as near as you could cipher it down. And he had a little small bull pup that to look at him you'd think he weren't worth a cent, but to set around and look ornery and lay for a chance to steal something. But as soon as the money was up on him he was a different dog. His under jaw'd begin to stick out like the forecastle of a steamboat, and his teeth would uncover and shine savage like the furnaces, and a dog might tackle him and bully-rag him and bite him and throw him over his shoulder two or three times, and Andrew Jackson— which was the name of the pup, Andrew Jackson would never let on but what he was satisfied and hadn't expected nothing else, and the bets being doubled and doubled on the other side all the time till the money was all up, and then all of a sudden he would grab that other dog just by the joint of his hind leg and freeze to it, not chaw, you understand, but only just grip and hang on till they throwed up the sponge if it was a year. Smiley always come out winner on that pup, till he harnessed a dog once that didn't have no hind legs, because they'd been sawed off by a circular saw, and when the thing had gone along far enough and the money was all up, and he come to make a snatch for his pet hold, he saw in a minute how he'd been imposed on, and how the other dog had him in the door, so to speak, and peered surprised, and then he looked sort of discouraged-like, and didn't try no more to win the fight, 
and so he got shucked out bad. He gives Smiley a look, as much to say his heart was broke, and it was his fault for putting up a dog that hadn't no hind legs for him to take hold of, which was his main dependence in a fight, and then he limped off a piece and laid down and died. It was a good pup, was that Andrew Jackson, and would have made a name for himself if he had lived, for the stuff was in him, and he had genius. I know it, because he hadn't had no opportunities to speak of, and it don't stand to reason that a dog could make such a fight as he could under them circumstances if he hadn't no talent. It always makes me feel sorry when I think of that last fight of his'n, and the way it turned out. Well, this year Smiley had rat terriers and chicken cocks and tomcats and all them kinds of things till you couldn't rest, and you couldn't fetch nothing for him to bet on but he'd match you. He catched a frog one day and took him home and said he calculated to educate him, and so he never done nothing for three months but set in his backyard and learned that frog to jump, and you bet you he did learn him too. He'd give him a little punch behind, and the next minute you'd see that frog whirling in the air like a doughnut. You'd see him turn one somerset, or maybe a couple if he got a good start, and come down flat-footed and all right like a cat. He got him up so in the matter of catching flies, and kept him in practice so constant that he'd nail a fly every time as far as he could see him. Smiley said all a frog wanted was education, and he could do most anything, and I believe him. Why, I've seen him set Daniel Webster down on this floor, Daniel Webster was the name of the frog, and sing out, Flies, Daniel, flies! And quicker'n you could wink, he'd spring straight up and snake a fly off on the counter there, and flop down on the floor again as solid as a gob of mud, and fall to scratching the side of his head with his hind foot, as indifferent as if he hadn't no idea he'd been doing any more'n any frog might do. You never see a frog so modest and straightforward as he was, for all he was so gifted, and when it come to fair and square jumping on a dead level, he could get over more ground at one straddle than any animal of his breed you ever see. Jumping on a dead level was his strong suit, you understand, and when it come to that, Smiley would ante up money on him as long as he had a red. Smiley was monstrous proud of his frog, and well he might be, for fellows that had traveled and been everywheres all said he laid over any frog that ever they see. Well, Smiley kept the beast in a little lattice box, and he used to fetch him downtown sometimes and lay for a bet. One day a fella, a stranger in the camp he was, came across him with his box and says, "'What might it be that you got in the box?' And Smiley says, sort of indifferent-like, "'It might be a parrot, or it might be a canary, maybe, but it ain't. It's only just a frog.' And the fella took at it and looked at it careful and turned it round this way and that and says, Hmm, so tis. Well, what's he good for? Well, Smiley says, easy and careless, he's good enough for one thing, I should judge. He can outjump Ary Frog in Calaveras County. The fella took the box again and took another long, particular look and gave it back to Smiley and says, very deliberate, "'Well, I don't see no points about that frog that's any better than any other frog.' "'Maybe you don't,' says Smiley. "'Maybe you understand frogs, and maybe you don't understand them. "'Maybe you've had experience, and maybe you ain't. "'Only a amateur, as it were. "'Anyways, I've got my opinion, and I'll risk forty dollars "'that he can outjump any frog in Calaveras County.' 
and the fellow studied a minute, and then says, kind of sad-like, "'Well, I'm only a stranger here, and I ain't got no frog, but if I had a frog, I'd bet you.' And then Smiley says, "'That's all right, that's all right. If you'll hold my box a minute, I'll go and get you a frog.' So the fellow took the box, and put up his forty dollars along with Smiley's, and sat down to wait. So he sat there a good while, thinking and thinking to himself, and then he got the frog out and prized his mouth open, and took a teaspoon and filled him full of quail shot, filled him pretty near up to his chin, and set him on the floor. Smiley, he went to the swamp and slopped around in the mud for a long time, and finally he catched a frog and fetched him in and give him to this fellow and says, Now, if you're ready, set him alongside of Dan'l with his four paws just even with Dan'l, and I'll give the word. Then he says, One, two, three, jump! And him and the fellow touched up the frog from behind, and the new frog hopped off, but Dan'l give a heave and heisted up his shoulders so like a Frenchman, but it wasn't no use. He couldn't budge. He was planted as solid as an anvil, and he couldn't no more stir than if he was anchored out. Smiley was a good deal surprised, and he was disgusted, too, but he didn't have no idea what the matter was, of course. The fellow took the money and started away, and when he was going out at the door he sort of jerked his thumb over his shoulders, this way, at Dan'l, and says again, very deliberately, "'Well, I don't see no points about that frog that's any better than any other frog.' Smiley, he stood scratching his head and looked down at Dan'l a long time, and at last he says, "'I do wonder what in the nation that frog throwed off for. I wonder if there ain't something the matter with him. He appears to look mighty baggy somehow.' And he catched Dan'l by the nap of the neck and lifted him up and says, "'Why, blame my cats, if he don't weigh five pound!' and turned him upside down, and he belched out a double handful of shot, and then he see how it was, and he was the maddest man. He set the frog down and took out after that fellow, <laughs> but he never catched him. And—here Simon Wheeler heard his name called from the front yard, and got up to see what was wanted, and turning to me as he moved away, he said, "'Just set where you are, stranger, and rest easy. I ain't going to be gone a second. But by your leave, I did not think that a continuation of the history of the enterprising vagabond Jim Smiley would be likely to afford me much information concerning the Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, and so I started away. At the door I met the sociable wheeler returning, and he buttonholed me and recommenced, "'Well, this year Smiley had a yellow-eyed cow that didn't have no tail, only just a short stump like a banana, and—' "'Oh, hang Smiley and his afflicted cow,' I muttered good-naturedly, and bidding the old gentleman good day, I departed. Our second piece by Mark Twain tonight is The Late Benjamin Franklin. I'm surprised at some of the sour reactions it has prompted— from critics who probably shouldn't even attempt to deal with humorous topics. They miss altogether the lifelong affinity that Twain felt for the most endearing of our founding fathers. Both men started out as printers and went into publishing. Both men were endowed with extraordinary humor, and both men could wield a satirical pen. 
Mark Twain was ahead of his time in many important ways, for tonight let's take note of the fact that he was a stand-up comedian before that term even existed. And before the expression celebrity roast was ever coined, Mark Twain was doing it beautifully, as you will see in this next piece. The Late Benjamin Franklin Twain begins with a bogus quote from B.F., "'Never put off till tomorrow what you can do day after tomorrow just as well.'" This party was one of those persons whom they call philosophers. He was twins, being born simultaneously in two different houses in the city of Boston. These houses remain unto this day, and have signs upon them worded in accordance with the facts. The signs are considered well enough to have, though not necessary, because the inhabitants point out the two birthplaces to the stranger anyhow, and sometimes as often as several times in the same day. The subject of this memoir was of a vicious disposition, and early prostituted his talents to the invention of maxims and aphorisms calculated to inflict suffering upon the rising generation of all subsequent ages. His simplest acts, also, were contrived with a view to their being held up for the emulation of boys forever, boys who might otherwise have been happy. It was in this spirit that he became the son of a soap-boiler, and probably for no other reason than that the efforts of all future boys who tried to be anything might be looked upon with suspicion unless they were the sons of soap-boilers. With a malevolence which is without parallel in history, he would work all day and then sit up nights, and let on to be studying algebra by the light of a smoldering fire, so that all other boys might have to do that also, or else have Benjamin Franklin thrown up to them. Not satisfied with these proceedings, he had a fashion of living wholly on bread and water, and studying astronomy at mealtime, a thing which has brought affliction to millions of boys since whose fathers had read Franklin's pernicious biography. His maxims were full of animosity toward boys. Nowadays a boy cannot follow out a single natural instinct without tumbling over some of those everlasting aphorisms and hearing from Franklin on the spot. If he buys two cents worth of peanuts, his father says, Remember what Franklin has said, my son, a grout a day's a penny a year, and the comfort is all gone out of those peanuts. If he wants to spin his top when he has done work, his father quotes, Procrastination is the thief of time. If he does a virtuous action, he never gets anything for it, because virtue is its own reward. And that boy is hounded to death and robbed of his natural rest, because Franklin said once, in one of his inspired flights of malignity, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy and wealthy and wise. As if it were any object to a boy to be healthy and wealthy and wise on such terms, the sorrow that that maxim has cost me through my parents, experimenting on me with it, tongue cannot tell." The legitimate result is my present state of general debility, indigence, and mental aberration. My parents used to have me up before nine o'clock in the morning sometimes when I was a boy. If they had let me take my natural rest, where would I have been now? Keeping store, no doubt, and respected by all. And what an adroit old adventurer the subject of this memoir was! 
In order to get a chance to fly his kite on Sunday, he used to hang a key on the string and let on to be fishing for lightning, and a guileless public would go home chirping about the wisdom and the genius of the hoary Sabbath-breaker. If anybody caught him playing mumble-peg by himself after the age of sixty, he would immediately appear to be ciphering out how the grass grew, as if it was any of his business. My grandfather knew him well, and he says Franklin was always fixed, always ready. If a body during his old age happened on him unexpectedly when he was catching flies or making mud pies or sliding on a cellar door, he would immediately look wise and rip out a maxim and walk off with his nose in the air and his cap turned wrong side before, trying to appear absent-minded and eccentric. He was a hard lot. He invented a stove that would smoke your head off in four hours by the clock. One can see the almost devilish satisfaction he took in it by giving it his name. He was always proud of telling how he entered Philadelphia for the first time with nothing in the world but two shillings in his pocket and four rolls of bread under his arm. But really, when you come to examine it critically, it was nothing. Anybody could have done it. To the subject of this memoir belongs the honor of recommending the army to go back to bows and arrows in place of bayonets and muskets. He observed with his customary force that the bayonet was very well under some circumstances, but that he doubted whether it could be used with accuracy at a long range. Benjamin Franklin did a great many notable things for his country, and made her young name to be honored in many lands as the mother of such a son. It is not the idea of this memoir to ignore that or cover it up. No, the simple idea of it is to snub those pretentious maxims of his, which he worked up with a great show of originality, out of truisms that had become wearisome platitudes as early as the dispersion from Babel, and also to snub his stove and his military inspirations, his unseemly endeavor to make himself conspicuous when he entered Philadelphia, and his flying his kite and fooling away his time in all sorts of such ways when he ought to have been foraging for soap fat or constructing candles. I merely desired to do away with somewhat of the prevalent calamitous idea among the heads of families that Franklin acquired his great genius by working for nothing, studying by moonlight, and getting up in the night instead of waiting till morning like a Christian, and that this program, rigidly inflicted, will make a Franklin of every father's fool. It is time that these gentlemen were finding out that these execrable eccentricities of instinct and conduct are only the evidences of genius, not the creators of it. I wish I had been the father of my parents long enough to make them comprehend this truth, and thus prepare them to let their son have an easier time of it. When I was a child I had to boil soap, notwithstanding my father was wealthy, and I had to get up early and study geometry at breakfast and peddle my own poetry and do everything just as Franklin did in the solemn hope that I would be a Franklin some day. And here I am. You've been listening to The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County and The Late Benjamin Franklin by Mark Twain. As with all good celebrity roasts, Twain's send-up of Benjamin Franklin was solidly based in his affection for the man, 
one satirist saluting and celebrating another. The human race, said Mark Twain, has only one really effective weapon, and that is laughter. Against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best. Thank you.